listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to take a look in a little book titled The Conspirator's Hierarchy, The Story of the Committee of 300 by one Mr. Dr. John Coleman. And tonight, we're going to answer some questions that many people ask all the time. We always talk about they do this and they do that. Who are they? Tonight, we're going to name some names directly out of Dr. Coleman's book here. These were the people and or corporations responsible for many of the events in the world, at least as of 1991 at the publication of this book. And I suspect that many of the names may have changed but it's still the same groups and organizations at the center of it all. And it's those people who received the blessing of these people moving forward that have taken on this new mantle and are now the names behind all the games we see in the world. So tonight we're going to go ahead and read and see. All these things that Dr. John Coleman exposed, Dr. John Coleman, for those who don't know, worked for the intelligence agencies for some time, was disgusted with the things he discovered, and went public with this stuff, written in book form. And of course, the mainstream media will largely try to discredit him and the things he says. But he hasn't really been proven wrong either, and that's the really vindicating factor for all of this. Many of the things he alleges in the book have since come to be a known commodity. And many of the other aspects of it that are still somewhat hidden are coming to the light of day today. And like I said, I suspect some of the names may have changed of the individual players. But the major corporations are still the same. Of course, they also go through their little morphations where they also change their names. We've seen such things with different organizations like Cambridge Analytica, now the SCL group. They go by different names through the course of time, but they do the same stuff. The old tricks are the best tricks. This these people know, and this these people put into practice. And they choose their successors very carefully. And the ones they choose will go ahead and play it forward the way that it's been done here. So let's get right into the book. And we're reading from a portion of it here that will talk about the Committee of 300, some of its members and its structure, the meat of the matter, if you will. We've talked about some of this before, some of the things that Dr. Coleman has said about this group that ostensibly runs the world. And I suspect maybe a little bit of it has changed today, but it's still the same basic parameters that fall into play here. And we'll see as we read on here, we'll find out some specifics. So let's get into it. The Committee of 300 is filled with members of British aristocracy, which has corporate interests and associates in every country of the world, including the USSR. I'm going to pause for a second. This was the big boogeyman back when this was being written. So I would also include places like, oh, China, <laughs> you know, Iran, Iraq, all of these various places that have been so very much 
ostracized through the years as the enemies of the U.S. Ukraine, it's all different nations of the world. All of it, the whole thing, has permutations throughout the entire world. The committee's structure is as follows. The Tavistock Institute at Sussex University and London sites is owned and controlled by the Royal Institute for International Affairs, whose Hofjuden in America is Henry Kissinger. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. I suspect that Dr. Kissinger is no longer their official representative here in America, but he does still have a lot of say politically. I'm sure he's picked his predecessor now. And whoever that predecessor may be, I'm sure is carrying forward the same types of agendas that Dr. Kissinger was. This I've no doubt. So we see already an important connection, Tavistock, owned by the RIIA, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is closely associated with what's known as the Rhodes Roundtable Group. Rhodes, as in the Rhodes Scholar Program, of which Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar and many others. The Eagle Star Group, which changed its name to the Star Group after the close of the Second World War, is composed of a group of major international companies involved in overlapping and interfaced areas, the first of which is insurance, the second of which is banking, the third is real estate, the fourth is entertainment, keep that in mind, the fifth is high technology, including cybernetics, electronic communications, etc., going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Dr. John Coleman in 1991, when he published this book, understood the importance of cybernetics, which is something I talk about quite frequently. This is the methodology that has been applied to controlling the affairs of the world and controlling so much more, even down to individuals, individual psychology. So this is a huge factor. So we have these five different areas being named here. Insurance, banking, real estate, entertainment, high technology. Those are all these groups composed of in the star group. The star group. Now, I'm not sure if the star group still exists as named here. Perhaps they have shifted names once again. And maybe they're named something different today, but keep in mind they had holdings in insurance, banking, real estate, entertainment, and high technology. All the very important areas of our modern culture and society. All of these places have a massive influence on the cultural dynamic, especially in the Western world. Let's go ahead and read on here. Banking, while not the mainstay, is vitally important, especially in the areas where banks act as clearinghouses and money launderers for drug money. The main big-name banks are the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve Banks, the Bank of International Settlements, the World Bank, and the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. American Express Bank is a means of recycling drug dollars. Each of these banks is affiliated with and or controls hundreds of thousands of large and small banks throughout the world. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. 
This still holds true today, although maybe some of the names may have changed. You still see these major players here, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve Banks, Bank of International Settlements, World Bank, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, American Express Bank. Did you know American Express has its own bank banking system? And they all own subsidiary banks throughout the world. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. Let's read on. Banks, large and small, in the thousands, are in the Committee of 300 network, including Banca Comercial d'Italia, Banca Privata, Banco Abriozano, the Netherlands Bank, Barclays Bank, Banco del Colombia, Banco de Ibero America. Of special interest is Banca del la Svizzera Italiana, BSI, it's called in parentheses here, since it handles flight capital investments to and from the United States, primarily in dollars and U.S. bonds, located and isolated in neutral Lugano, the flight capital center for the Venetian black nobility. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now is where the rubber meets the road with some of this. We're going to get to naming some names here. And most of them associate with what's called the black nobility of Europe. So, let's keep that in mind here as we continue along the path here. Lugano is not in Italy or in Switzerland and is a kind of twilight zone for shady flight capital operations. I guess it's partially somewhere between Switzerland and Italy, I guess. Sounds interesting. It's not either in Italy or Switzerland. It's its own kind of zone. So, we see once again an interesting connotation here. No national boundary for this. It has its own kind of boundary. Interesting. Interesting stuff for certain. So, let's continue on here and see what else we can find out here. George Ball, who owns a large block of stock in BSI, is a prominent insider, and the Hanks U.S. representative, the bank's U.S. representative, excuse me. BCCI, BNL, Banco Mercantile de Mexico, Banco Nacional de Panama, Bangkok Metropolitan Bank, Bank Luemi, Bank Hippolyum, Standard Bank, Bank of Geneva, he goes on to name an entire slew of banks all over the world, Bank of the Middle East and the Royal Bank of Canada, to name but a very small number, in a huge list of specialty banks. So these are all owned and operated by these same banking groups here, BSI. The Oppenheimers of South Africa are much bigger heavyweights than the Rockefellers. For instance, in 1981, Harry Oppenheimer, chairman of the giant Anglo-American corporation that controls gold and diamond mining, sales and distribution in the world, stated that he was about to launch into the North American banking market. Oppenheimer promptly invested $10 billion in a specially created vehicle for the purpose of buying into big banks in the U.S., among which was Citicorp. Oppenheimer's investment vehicle was called Minorco, which set up shop in Bermuda, a British royal preserve, a royal family preserve, excuse me. On the board of Minorco was to be found Walter Riston of Citicorp and Robert Clare, its chief counsel. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. I'm sure you've heard of Citicorp or Citibank. 
This is owned by the Oppenheimers. Interesting, Oppenheimer. Dr. Oppenheimer has one of the best movies in America right now in the world. One of the top grossing films of the summer. Oppenheimer. Interesting, the family connections, isn't it? Always these weird family connections with these things and these very famous people having to do with interests that you wouldn't normally think. I mean, Oppenheimer, as we know the name, was a scientist that worked on the Manhattan Project. But, of course, it runs much deeper than that, doesn't it? Always does. Let's read on. The only other company to rival Oppenheimer in the field of precious metals and minerals was Consolidated Gold Fields of South Africa, but Oppenheimer took control of it with a 28% stake, the largest single stockholder. Thus, gold, diamonds, platinum, titanium, tantalite, copper, iron ore, uranium, and 52 other metals and minerals, many of them of absolutely vital strategic value to the United States, passed into the hands of the Committee of 300. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Valuable metals, precious metals, real commodities in this world are controlled by this group. The Committee of 300 here, who names Oppenheimers, the Oppenheimer family, as part of its membership. Once again, some of the royal families and the very wealthy families of the black nobility of Europe. Let's read on. Thus was the vision of one of the earlier South African members of the Committee of 300, Cecil John Rhodes, fully realized a vision which started with the spilling of the blood of thousands upon thousands of white farmers and their families in South Africa, whom history records as the Boers, B-O-E-R-S, the Boers, while the United States stood by with folded hands, as did the rest of the world, this small nation was subjected to the most vicious war of genocide in history. The United States will be subjected to the same treatment by the Committee of 300 when our turn comes, and it will not be long in coming. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. If you didn't just get chills down your spine with that last sentence, you haven't been paying attention for the past three years here in the United States. Anyway... Let's continue reading. Insurance companies play a key role in the business of the Committee of 300. Among these are found such top insurance companies as Asacaraziano Generale of Venice, and another one that I can't pronounce that looks to be in Italian, and I don't speak Italian so well, so I'm going to butcher it. I'm not even going to attempt that one. But it is the largest and second largest insurance companies in the world who keep their bank accounts at the Bank of International Settlements in Swiss gold francs. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. They have their holdings in gold. Gold. Remember that. The insurance companies. They have holdings in gold. Not just regular fiat dollars or petrodollars. Real commodities. Gold. Let's go ahead and read on here. Both control a multiplicity of investment banks whose turnover in stocks on Wall Street double that of U.S. investors. Going to pause for another moment here, folks. So now... We see these two largest insurance companies in the world, which, like I said, is probably still the same today. Maybe the names have changed slightly. 
maybe they've consolidated other smaller insurance companies into their folds. Or maybe many of the insurance companies we're familiar with are subsidiaries of these large companies. But they also own banks. Investment banks. They own investment banks, the insurance companies. Doesn't that seem like a conflict of interest? I would think it is. Let's read on and see what else we could find out. Because this is something that always has irked me to no end. Insurance companies have way too much say in how business is run, in how things are done, in people's health. All of these different areas. Think about that. Your health insurance. If you have health insurance, your health insurance here in America determines what your medical treatments are going to be. Your insurance company decides what treatments you can get and what ones you can't. What course of treatment your doctor can prescribe for you and what course of treatment they cannot. This has always irritated me to no end. They think they know better than doctors. And they can dictate this. So the doctor will send you for all kinds of tests that you probably don't need when they know exactly what's wrong and can treat it. But before they can treat it, the insurance company wants them to prove it's not something else. So they have to run a battery of tests on you to make sure it's not these other things before they can treat the real condition, which oftentimes takes time, money, and... Delaying treatment sometimes can cause more problems. So it seems illogical and it seems a fallacy, but many of the doctors today, their hands are tied by the insurance companies. This is how it operates. And it's the same thing in various other dealings in business. I like to use the health insurance side of it as an example because this is something I think we could all relate to. I'm sure we've all been there. I'm sure we've all been there. Before you could get the treatment you need, you have to go for the tests that you don't need so that somebody can make an excessive amount of money on it. And it's not helpful for you, the patient, but it is helpful for those business interests, the banks and the insurance companies that, the, that own the banks. This, this should be a revelation for people, knowing that the insurance companies own the banks. Not all of them. Not all the insurance companies own the banks or vice versa. But understand that these entities work together hand in hand. The insurance companies and the banks work together concurrently and they grease each other's palms any way that they can. And oftentimes at the top of the power structure, it's the same people that own both the insurance company and the bank. And it's a win-win situation for them. Same old story. Same as it ever was, just like the old song goes. Same as it ever was. Uh, let's read on, though, here. Prominent on the board of these two insurance giants, our committee of 300 members, the Giustiani family, black nobility of Rome and Venice, who trace their lineage to the emperor Justinian. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Remember, the elites of this world are obsessed with family bloodlines. And, of course, these people trace their lineage back to the Emperor Justinian. Uh, let's read on who else. It says Sir Jocelyn Hombro of Hombros, or Merchant Bank, Pierre Paolo Lozati Farquise, 
whose lineage dates back six centuries to the most ancient Luzatos, the black nobility of Venice, and Umberto Ortolani of the ancient black nobility family of the same name. going to pause for a moment here, folks. You'll notice we're saying black nobility an awful lot. These are the old money families of Europe, the ones that will trace their lineage back to some king or ruler in antiquity and have largely received their fortunes from such things, from being blood relatives of these people. Usually, through no effort of their own, they've inherited this wealth, and these are the people who largely control and run things. They've never worked a day in their frickin' lives for anything, never wanted for anything, taken advantage of others, and these are the people who run the show. And it's been this way for a very long time, and it's a sad state of affairs. It's almost like the notion of a breakaway civilization. You'll, you'll notice I said almost. This has been going on a long time, folks, and there's just so many different layers to this whole thing that this is just part of what's going on. So just knowing some of these ruling dynasties that have been around for many hundreds of years, if not thousands, knowing that they're the ones that benefit from the various goings-on in the world, you can know a little something about who's manipulating things. And it's not to say every member of their family lineage is involved. That might not necessarily be the case, but of course, this wealth that's been passed down, it has to have somebody management to manage it so that the family stays wealthy, doesn't lose their wealth to bad business dealings or some such thing. So, of course, there's always somebody who's entrusted with operating this. And this may be somebody within the family or somebody not necessarily in the family, but in a, a trusted associate or employee of said family that manages all the dealings. So let's go ahead and continue reading here. Other old Venetian black nobility committee of 300 members and board members are board members, sorry, and board members of ASG and RAS are the Doria family, the financiers of the Spanish Habsburgs, Eli de Rothschild of the French Rothschild family, Baron August von Fink, Fink, the second richest man in Germany, is now deceased. Franco Orsini Bonacasi of the ancient Orsini black nobility that traces its lineage to an ancient Roman senator of the same name. The Alba family, whose lineage dates back to the great Duke of Alba. And Baron Pierre Lambert, a cousin of the Belgian Rothschild family. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So there we have some names here of various people of this group known collectively as the Black Nobility. These are people that trace their lineage back to earlier times and earlier people who held some type of power in important places, like in Rome, and who had acquired wealth through some of their workings and dealings. And these people have largely been the inheritors of that. 
So let's keep this in mind as we continue reading here. The English companies controlled by the British royal family are Eagle Star, Prudential Assurance Company, the Prudential Insurance Company, which own and control most American insurers, including Allstate Insurance. At the head of the list is Eagle Star, probably the most powerful front for military intelligence department 6, MI6. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Big insurance has ties to the intelligence community. Big banks have ties to the intelligence community. It never ends. Never ends. MI6. MI6. We have crossover between the intelligence community, between government organization, between big banks, big insurance companies, the major players in this world, the black nobility, all tied together. We have these connections. This is the octopus of control, as some have labeled it. And we see how all of these different layers upon layers of how these things operate in this world just seem to overlap in various places. Let's go ahead and see if we could find a little more context to that statement here. Eagle Star, although nowhere near as large as Asakurizoni General, is perhaps equally important simply because it is owned by members of the Queen of England's family, and as titular head of the Committee of 300, Eagle Star makes a tremendous impact. Eagle Star is more than a major front for MI6. It is also a front for major British banks, including Hill Samuels, N.M. Rothschild & Sons, one of the gold price fixers who meet daily in London, and Barclays Bank, one of the funders of the African National Congress, or the ANC. It can be said with a great degree of accuracy that the most powerful British oligarchical families created Eagle Star as a vehicle for black operations against those who oppose Committee of 300 policies. Unlike the CIA, British law makes it a serious crime to name MI6 officials, so the following is but a partial list of top brass of MI6 who are or were also members of the Committee of 300. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So Coleman put his neck out naming these people. And I'm sure, like I said, this is from 1991 when this was published and put out there for the public. So these names have likely changed now, so keep that in mind. But these were the members who were operatives of MI6, top brass of MI6, who were also members of the Committee of 300. Some of those making the shady business dealings of the world, controlling and running the world for their own Greedy benefit. So he names six names here, and we'll read them. Lord Hartley Shawcross, Sir Brian Edward Mountain, Sir Kenneth Keith, Sir Kenneth Strong, Sir William Stevenson, and Sir William Wiseman. All of the foregoing are or were heavily involved in key Committee of 300 companies, which interface with literally thousands of companies engaged in every branch of commercial activity, as we shall see. Some of these companies include Rank Organization, Xerox Corporation, ITT, IBM, RCA, CBS, NBC, 
BBC and CBC and Communications, Raytheon, Textron, Bendix, Atlantic Richfield, British Petroleum, Royal Dutch Shell, Marine Midland Bank, Lehman Brothers, Kuhn Loeb, General Electric, Westinghouse Corporation, United Fruit Company, and a great many more. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, you see how entrenched our modern world is in this grand conspiracy by those select few people actually running things at the topmost levels of the power structure for their own selfish interests. Do you see how pervasive this is? How we have these members of this committee of 300 who are also intelligence operatives and also run major corporations run major corporations of many types all controlled and operated primarily by these same people at the topmost levels let's read on it's it gets a little bit more interesting here as we continue mi6 ran a large number of these companies through british intelligence stationed in the rca building in new york which was the headquarters of its chief officer sir william stevenson radio corporation of america rca was formed by ge westinghouse morgan guarantee and trust acting for the british crown and united fruit back in 1919 as a british intelligence center RCA's first president was J.P. Morgan's Owen Young, after whom the Young Plan was named. In 1929, David Sarnoff was appointed to run RCA. Sarnoff had acted as an assistant to Young at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference, where a fallen Germany was stabbed in the back by all the victorious allies. A network of Wall Street banks and brokerage houses takes care of the stock market for the committee. And prominent among these are Blythe, Eastman Dillon, the Morgan Groups, Lazard Freries, and Kuhn Loeb Rhodes. Nothing happens on Wall Street that is not controlled by the Bank of England, whose instructions are relayed through the Morgan Groups and then put into action through key brokerage houses whose top executives are ultimately responsible for carrying out committee directives. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So do you understand, now most people would say, They'd all have to be in on it for that to be true for these things. No, you just need a couple key executives in place that know who they're taking their marching orders from or know what their alleged competition are doing so that they could better pivot to benefit from it. This is what's done in this regard. So you have operatives from the intelligence community set up RCA, British Intelligence, infiltrated American corporations set up shop and ran ops for British intelligence through RCA and got investment from some of these other places. And we have this same kind of thing goes on. How many corporations have been infiltrated in this way? How many of these different groups are run by a small group of people at the top. Just look at the the nature of what we can see in the public sector here, okay, as far as business goes. 
Look at what happens on the regular with business. We'll take the pharmaceutical business, for instance. You always, always, always see one buying up the other until it's just maybe two or three major corporations that own it all and run it all. Even the subsidiary companies that were at one time their competition, now they own them. I've seen this firsthand. I worked in the retail pharmacy business for a number of years, and I saw buyout after buyout after buyout of these major drugstore chains around the nation here that happened. So many smaller companies, regional companies, were bought up by larger national companies and then swallowed up by international companies. And now you have a very small, select few major retail pharmacies in America. You have CVS, you have Walgreens, and you have Rite Aid. They're the big three. Never used to be that way. There was always, always, always smaller competitors don't get me wrong, I'm sure there still are some small regional companies, but at what point do they begin to sell out? I've seen this numerous times. I'm friends with a lot of people who are independent pharmacists who've run their own businesses, and eventually they all sell out to the major chains because at some point it gets to where they just don't want to do it anymore because it's a dog-eat-dog business, and they can't compete price-wise. So what they do is one day they just sell out their prescription base to this other company and close up shop and slowly disappear into the sunset. And the major corporation has all the business, once again, for pennies on the dollar. And it works the same across all of these different business dealings. So at some point what happens is monopoly laws get thrown out the window no such thing, really, if you know how to play the system and use sub-corporations, front organizations. And that's what they do. That's what they do. They, they buy up smaller companies. Sometimes they'll operate under the auspices of these small companies as a facade in the beginning. Or sometimes they keep that long-term. I mean, look at companies like BlackRock. What do they own? They own all kinds of stuff. <laughs> look at some of these companies. The media. Look at mass media. There's, what, maybe six major media corporations that run everything, about 95% of everything that comes across a TV screen, a computer screen, or a radio. All of these things, all consolidated into these large companies, these large corporations... That's not what strict capitalism was founded on. It was founded on the idea of competition. But what happens when you get crony capitalism is exactly this. And that's what's happened in the Western world here, folks. That's what's happened to our nation, founded upon capitalist ideas. What's happened is it's transformed through time into crony capitalism by those people that were more interested in maintaining their wealth and power that they inherited from time immemorial going back from their ancestors who may have done some good things or may have done some shady things, let's be honest about it, but obtained wealth and power. And of course, these people, by and large, 
have inherited a lot of this and learned how to be manipulative and play the game, how to play the system, work the system, infiltrate into various areas of government and intelligence, and get things done that they wanted done that benefit them, to keep them in that position. So that's largely what's done. So doing so, what they did is they began to transform this capitalist system into a crony capitalist system, which always results in fascism when it gets down to it, because essentially what happens when you have corporation and government in collusion with one another running things, this can be defined as fascism. So even if they have alleged good intentions and want to maybe help people and redistribute wealth in certain ways, they're still ultimately benefiting, aren't they? They're still ultimately benefiting. This is like the old coal mine companies. I'm from the Northeast, from Pennsylvania. Coal mining here was a big business back a hundred years ago. Big business. So what happened is the coal mining companies, they came in, they bought up land, they built housing and stores on the land. They put up their employees in these homes. They had them rent these homes from them, made it possible for them to have somewhere to live close to where they work. So the workers, they would work, and from their salary, they would pay the rent for their house, which was also owned by the coal mining company. And they would go to the store, the mercantile shop, where they bought their groceries and their merchandise and their needs, once again from the coal mining company that owned the mercantile store too. So what happens there? They're paying, the coal mining company pays their wages, but the coal mining company also gains back their wages in the form of rent and in the form of products bought from them. So essentially what you have here is net zero slavery, wage slavery. And this is one of the methods in which crony capitalism came into prominence here in America. This is one of the reasons why we have things like monopoly laws, but they, they learned very quickly how to skirt these monopoly laws and have continued to do so. And sometimes it's just a game of let's disguise this thing behind a front organization. And that's what they do. Let's go ahead and we'll... Uh, We'll get what we want done, not through direct business practice, but we'll form a philanthropic organization that will donate money to a certain thing. So it's not really the business that's paying for a certain thing to be done. It's a philanthropic organization that wants to benefit somebody in some way that may do what we want them to do. It's the same thing with these, well... Uh, Super PAC groups and stuff for government. Let's make a donation to a political campaign. It's just a donation. We don't expect anything in return. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And this is how crony capitalism gets done. And this is what's happened. They've infiltrated the capitalist system through this means here in this way. These very centralized groups run through this committee of 300, ostensibly. And they've gone ahead and leveraged things to their benefit. 
Let's go ahead and continue reading on, though. I don't want to get too carried away with a side tangent there, which that was, but I think it was an important one to point out because this is demonstrable. We could see this right in the public arena. This is talking largely about stuff that has gone on behind the scenes. So we know there may be some merit here to a lot of what's being said by Coleman. So let's read on. Before it overstepped the limits laid down by Morgan Guarantee, Drexel Burnham Lambert was a favorite of the Committee of 300. In 1981, almost every major brokerage house on Wall Street had sold out to the committee. Fibro, merging with Solomon Brothers, Fibro is the business arm of the Oppenheimers of Anglo-American Corporation. By this control mechanism, the Committee of 300 ensures that its members and their far-flung business corporations turned their investments on Wall Street over at a rate of double that of the non-insider foreign investors. Remember, some of the richest families in the world live in Europe, so it is natural that they should have a preponderance of members on the committee. The von Thurn und Taxis family, who once owned the German postal franchise, make David Rockefeller look like a very poor relation. The von Thurn and Taxis dynasty dates back 300 years, and generation after generation of family members have had seats on the committee, which they occupy to this day. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. I don't know if they still occupy those seats today in 2023, as this was written in 1991, but I suspect probably they do have a member of the family that sits on one of these boards. Let's read on. We have already mentioned by name many of the most wealthy Venetian black nobility members of the Committee of 300, and other names will be added as we come across them in the various fields of endeavor. Now we shall include some American members of the Committee of 300 and try to trace their affiliations and connections to the British crown. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now we may get to some names that sound more familiar to folks in our Western culture here in America. Remember, these black nobility Venetian families go back a long time. They have ancestors here in America. They have relatives here in America, some of which have different names than they do. And this is how a lot of what they do gets disguised. They're relatives, but they have different last names. Sometimes they change their name when they come to America for various reasons. And we've seen this. This is demonstrable that family lineages change their names, simplify their names when they come to America. My name is very much the same. My last name is McRoy. That's a derivative of the Scottish McElroy. McElroy, which for anybody interested actually means son of the red-haired king. That's what McElroy translates to literally in the Gaelic. Son of the red-haired king. So I have an interesting family lineage myself. I haven't really delved that deeply into it, but my sister at one point started to look into it and was able to trace it back to the 1300s, which I think is incredibly intriguing in and of itself. But that's neither here nor there. But many of these people within the Venetian black nobility and other places, they like to trace their lineages back very far. And it's no different for the American relatives of these people. They know, many of them know their lineage, they're obsessed with family bloodlines, these elitists of the world. 
And there's a reason for this, of course. But that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to the reading. How can these facts be verified? Actually, some of them cannot be ver verified because the information comes straight out of intelligence files. But with a lot of legwork, there are many sources which can verify at least part of the facts. The work would involve a diligent search of Dunn & Bradstreet Reference Book of Corporations, Standard & Poor's, British and American, who's who with long hours of hard work and cross-referencing names with their corporate affiliations. Committee of 300 corporations, banks, and insurance companies operate under the unified command covering every conceivable matter of strategy and cohesive action. The committee is the only organized power hierarchy in the world, transcending all governments and individuals, however powerful and secure they may feel themselves to be. This covers finance, defense matters, and political parties of all colors and types. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this here is a stunning claim by Dr. Coleman that this Committee of 300 supersedes everything else. This is the power structure in the world, according to him. And I think he may have been correct as far as the members of this committee today. I can't say for sure if it's a lot of the same people or relatives of these people that he named. I can't say that for sure. There's no way to really know without having an inside connection into this. And, of course, Dr. Coleman here was an inside connection. He worked for the intelligence agencies, and he was able to find out these things because of his association, especially with MI6, with British intelligence. He understood a lot of these things. He looked into it, and he found all these connections and was appalled that this group, this Committee of 300, actually exists and is the centralized power in this world that supersedes kings and presidents and everything else. Supersedes it all. And I would say probably including the Vatican. I don't know if he comes out and makes that outright claim, but I suspect it's there. It's inferred. So, that being the case, you have this centralized group of just a handful of people, really, when you look at the numbers compared to the world population, that are actually running things for their own benefit. And let's face it, uh, some of the stuff that's been done in the name of the quote-unquote greater good hasn't really worked out for the greater good for the most part of humanity, has it? They always, always, always try to offer that up as reasoning behind things, it's for the, the greater good. It's for the greater good. Doesn't seem to apply, though. They can't possibly know what's good for you and me. They just know what's good for themselves. And they assume that they can do a better job figuring out what's good for everybody because of their position. But let's read on here. There is no entity the committee cannot reach and control, and that includes organized religions of the world. Going to pause for a moment, folks. There it is. There it is. I was just talking about the Vatican, and now here it is. Let's read on. This, then, is the all-powerful Olympian group, whose power base is in London and the city of London's financial centers with its grip on minerals, metals, and precious gems, cocaine, opium, and pharmaceutical drugs, renter, financer, banks, cult promoters, and founders of rock music. 
the British crown is the control point from which all things radiate. As the saying goes, they have a finger in every pie. It is obvious that the communications field is tightly controlled. Going back to RCA, we find out that its directorate is composed of British-American establishment figures who feature prominently in other organizations such as the CFR, NATO, the Club of Rome, the Trilateral Commission, Freemasonry, Skull and Bones, Bilderbergers, Round Table, Milner Society, and the Jesuits' Aristotle Society. Going to pause for a moment here, folks, and point out that Dr. Coleman was naming groups like the Bilderbergers in 1991 before it was even acknowledged as being a real thing. That's right. If you haven't been paying attention for a long time, you may not realize that there was a point in time when they did not even acknowledge that the Bilderbergers even existed, that the Bilderberg Group even existed or met every year since 1954. It was not admitted. It was called crazy conspiracy theory. There was no such thing as the Bilderberg Group until something like 2013, if memory serves me. 2012, 2013, something like that. It's only been about 10 years that they have admitted publicly that the Bilderberg Group even exists. And now they have a website and everything that tells you what their itinerary is every year. This was never a thing. It was only due to the diligence of researchers who followed these people around and saw what they were up to, that they were meeting in secret and reporting on this, that it ever came out to begin with. What other organizations and places do they meet secretly in determining these things? So to say secrecy that this can't possibly be done, too many people would know about it, that is a misnomer. The Bilderberg Group met in secret every year since 1954 until their public disclosure as being a real thing in, I think it was like 2012 or 2013, if memory serves me correctly. That's a lot of years meeting in secret and planning the fate of the world. And now it's just, oh yeah, yeah, we meet every year, here's our itinerary, we, we just talk. We don't do nothing. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so many of these other things. So so to think that nothing nothing like this could be done in secret, that everybody would know about it, that, that's a mistake. That is a misnomer. That's false. Government can't keep a secret like that. You want to bet? You want to bet? The NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, existed for 30-some-odd years before it was publicly admitted that it even existed. Nobody knew about it. Began operations in the 1960s, was not disclosed to have even existed until the 1990s. Totally secret and off the radar. Nobody knew of its existence. And this, by the way, is probably the home of what's known in conspiracy circles as the secret space program, the NRO. And now we see David Grush out exposing some of these UFO secrets that have been talked about in the UFO community for many years. He was a member of the NRO. He worked for the NRO, this group that ostensibly 
didn't even exist in the public mind until the 1990s, but had been in operation since the 1960s. Operated in, in secret for over 30 years. Over 30 years. This guy worked for them. Another member of the intelligence community. So to say that something like this can't possibly go on because too many people would know about it, that is totally wrong. Secrets are kept by many of these people all the time. Secrecy is one of the greatest weapons of control ever manufactured against mankind, against the human mind. It's a tool that was discovered by the early secret societies, the mystery schools, and they've used it masterfully ever since. They know how to keep a secret. They know how to manipulate a secret. And they know how to make you believe that there's a secret when, in fact, there probably is not a secret. But they'll dangle that carrot before your face and steer you around and lead you around by the nose with that ostensible secret that may or may not exist. And you'll follow. It's a tool of control. That's why the intelligence community exists that's why everything they do has some sort of secret classification to it. Not everything, but most things. It's why we have classification systems in military intelligence of secret, top secret, etc. Compartmentalized clearance. You need such and such a clearance to be able to see this. You have to have need to know. This is where the tool of compartmentalization came from. They've known about this stuff in the secret society groups for millennia, folks. They know how to manipulate people. They know how to keep secrets. They've been doing it for a long, long time. A long time. So to think something like this can't be possible is totally off base. And actually, I think Coleman was spot on with his assessment. Remember, he worked in the intelligence community. He had access to high-level people. He saw a lot of things that you and I would probably never be privy to. And it disgusted him, and he reported what he found. And people ostracized him. People today still ostracize him. Think he was a kook. Think he made it all up just for, what, fame and fortune, which he never really acquired from it. Same thing goes on today. Like, yeah, you... People out there really think people like me are making a fortune talking about this stuff? I'm certainly not. I'm just barely scraping by, folks. <laughs> just barely scraping by doing this. Barely. And, and that's the thing. It's not about wealth or fame or anything else. It's about wanting to do what's right for future generations. That's the whole point here. We need to stand up for what's right. And this is not right. Having these people, this small group of people, manipulating everything and, and being essentially the cause of countless wars and genocides in the world for their own personal benefit. Think about that. That's truly what's gone on. A small group of power-hungry, power-mad, insane, psychopathical people born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who want more wealth, more power, absolute control over everybody and everything, they're the ones that are coming up with these systems of control, manipulating other people, underlings below them, to do the work 
to do the dirty work for them and being the ones that reap the benefits. The Rothschilds have benefited from every major war since at least Napoleon. The big banks have benefited from every war. Every war. They fund both sides of every war. And that's a little-known truth out there as well. If they wanted to, the big banks could stop any war, any war in its tracks, by saying, nope, your money is cut off to these countries, to these militaries. We're not supporting it. We're not backing it. We're not giving you the finances to build the weapons to invade the the lands that you need to invade to do any of this stuff. This whole stupid debacle in Ukraine could be ended instantly if the big banks would say, nope, we're not bankrolling it anymore on either side. Screw you guys. We want peace and we want it now. Because I assure you, the civilians, the citizens that live in those areas, they don't have a dog in the fight. They just want to live their lives like the rest of us and be left alone to do their thing, to raise their families to live their lives, to irk out their existence, maybe make a little bit of money so that they could go on vacation or something and have enough to eat, raise their families comfortably without worrying about violence against them. That's all these people want. They're just like you and I. People are people all around the world. It doesn't matter where you're from or what your cultural background is. We all want the basic same things. We want our freedoms we want to be able to pursue what makes us happy. We want to be able to support our families, raise our families, and live where all of our needs are met. And maybe be able to travel a little, see the world somewhat. Have some creature comforts. All basic things. Without being bothered by somebody or bullied by somebody or with the threat of force against you or coercion, to be threatened. And that's what goes on. And the big banks, they could stop that at any time they want by cutting the funding, by saying, nope, you're cut off. But they want this to go on because they benefit from it. That's the whole point. They're the ones that reap the rewards from the conflicts. What do you think is going to happen in Ukraine when this is all over and done with? Well, after... Enough people have been killed and enough destruction, massive destruction has been done to cities. What will eventually happen is there will be rebuilding programs. The banks will lend money at large amounts of interest to the new puppet government that's set up in Ukraine or set up wherever the conflict goes on. They'll loan them money. And they'll go through this massive rebuilding program. And then, if the debt cannot be paid back, and usually it cannot, what happens is then the bank all of a sudden owns all of that land and all of that infrastructure. It is theirs. It is theirs. So they have all the, the resources for themselves, and the people fall in line and do what they want and oftentimes they do that through the guise of government or the guise of different corporate businesses or things like that but it's all centralized control 
by these banking and insurance interests that are run by this committee of 300, according to Coleman here. So it's a very small group of people that steers and directs these things in this world. So I assure you, if such a committee exists, and I'm pretty certain something similar to this exists, if not the exact spot-on thing named here by Coleman, they want this conflict in Ukraine for some reason, because they will benefit by it in some way, shape, or form. Just like they want to see the American Empire fall. That's what's going on right now. They're trying to destroy America. Because what has happened is America has become the new face of empire. And they, of course, want to shift this over to a global model of empire. So they need to destroy the American Empire. And they'll do so by devaluing our money. We see this going on ad nauseum. They'll do this by destroying our culture, by introducing self-destructive behaviors into popular culture in the young, indoctrinating the young into behaving in ways that do not benefit them in any way, shape, or form, that go against the natural order and cycle of things, go against your survival instincts, go against all of these various things. Want them to accept serfdom, essentially, as long as they feel like they're being represented in some way. Their identity tied up in representation in some way. And of course, they keep them confused about what their identity is. This younger generation, folks, they don't know which way they're going. They don't even know what friggin' bathroom to use. I kid you not, it's gotten that bad. They don't even know what pronouns to use. It's all been indoctrinated this way. This is destructive. This is how you destroy a society, how you destroy a generation of people and make them subjects under rule. If they don't even know who or what they are, how will they know how to stand for themselves? They won't. It's this victimhood mentality that's been indoctrinated into this younger generation. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not the entire generation of them. In fact, I see a large pocket of this upcoming generation that does not accept all these things it's been handed and questions things. And that, I see, is a huge hope for the future. But by and large, we're talking there's an entire generation here that has fallen in the middle here, that has become so comfortable and complacent in their place in society that they actually have time to worry about, well, what pronouns do I want to use? I don't want to offend anybody. They don't want to offend anyone. That's a terrible place to be. It's like walking on eggshells all the time for no reason. Because you don't want to offend somebody. That's a terrible position to be in. That's not freedom, folks. That's not life. That's not living. That's slavery by another name. That's all it is. If you're too afraid that you'll say the wrong thing and step out of line, and you might actually have some kind of 
backlash for that. That's a type of control. That's a type of slavery. It's bad enough that we are oftentimes bound into debt slavery, but to be bound into mind slavery as well, self-censoring, that's a form of slavery as well, being a slave to words, a slave to somebody else's sensibilities. You can't control how other people feel about you or about anything you say, but yet they want you to believe that you can. You wouldn't want to offend anybody, so what they do is they will stupefy speech. Homogenization of speech. You don't want to say the wrong thing, so then you get to where you have a very small selection of words you can use that won't offend anybody, and that's what the vernacular becomes. It's the lowering of the human mind. This is largely what's been done, and it's these people that run this center of power that have inculcated this on society. Remember, they control the media, the entertainment media, the genre in which people throughout the world can connect. They control big technology. We went through this at the, the open of the show. They control all these facets, and not the least of which is education, which I don't think Coleman mentioned directly there. But the education system, for sure, has been infiltrated by these ways of thinking, this radicalization of the youth that's been going on today. It is radicalization, folks. That's exactly what's going on. Of course, they won't call it that unless it's right-wing radicalism. <laughs> but it has largely been done, and it is, it's happening in the, on the right side of the political spectrum, too. That's all a false paradigm as well, the left-right paradigm. They raise up extremists on both sides. They have to have the extreme polarities in order to shift focus back and forth how they need to from time to time. And it keeps people in fighting over stupid things. Like, really? Why would you take your child to Drag Queen Story Hour? I never understood this. Never understood this whole mentality. Why would you do that? I don't care if you support that, you know, men want to dress and drag and do this stuff. What they do in their own bedrooms and in in the, their own places where they want to do it, where it's appropriate and stuff. I don't care. You want to do that freaky stuff? Go for it. As long as you're not affecting me. But if you're flaunting it in the face of innocent children... That becomes problematic, and this is largely what's been done because the purpose behind it is the lowering of the morality of the society at large. So you get the children to accept this as normal, to accept this as being okay. And what happens is, well... Oftentimes, these very same children become preyed upon by these groups. Because I'm sorry, if you're a grown man dressing up as a woman and you want to be around children, there's something suspicious about that. Especially if you want to be doing a drag show stripping in front of children, reading story time. <laughs> 
or whatever the case may be, or doing suggestive dancing, which has been associated with some of these, there's something very wrong with that. No question about it. But a child brought up under these conditions won't know any different and will think that's perfectly normal. And then we wind up with the conditions we have today, where we have so many people that are so confused about exactly who they are or what they are that it dominates their entire life and they have no time or no faculty to really look at the important things going on in the world, to look at world events, to see that the entire power structures become corrupt. When they're too busy obsessing over their pronouns, they're not going to notice that, hey, there's about 300 people that are actually running the world and they're, they're doing bad things. They've, they've actually activated an active eugenics program on the population under the guise of the greater good. Medical care. They won't notice that stuff because they're too busy obsessing over my pronouns. Who am I? Oh, I want to be special. I want to be acknowledged. I want to be accepted. Every human being has the emotional need to be accepted in some way, shape, or form. To belong. And that's all these people want, but they see the special treatment and the special attention that these fringe groups, and they are fringe groups, folks, there's a very, very tiny percent of the population that identifies in this way. Of course, those numbers have grown through the social engineering the past 10 years or so. But it's always been historically a very tiny percentage of the population that has identified in these ways. And there's nothing out of the ordinary with that. It should be a very small group. It always has been historically. Not to belittle those people, but that's not what's been represented in media and in pop culture, in mass culture here. If anything, people who legitimately identify in this way find themselves that fall in this camp should be offended by the representation they've gotten in media, in Hollywood, and in public view. They should be totally up in arms about that. Some of them are. Because they're painted with a bad brush. Because they're seen as being child predators. Because of this whole drag queen thing that's gone on. And I still don't know why any parent in their right mind would take their kid to a drag show. I'm all about fine. You want to be accepting and inclusive about things. That's all well and good. But do it where it's appropriate. Do it in a way that's appropriate. If you want to live that lifestyle, that's your business. As long as you're not harming someone else. But when you're indoctrinating children with this garbage that becomes problematic children should not be sexualized should not be presented with that type of entertainment if you want to call it that at that age it's not appropriate I don't care even if it's heterosexual entertainment or something like that it does not belong not appropriate not at all. That's where it becomes problematic, and that's where they've really jumped the shark with that idea. And I think they're getting some major backlash because of it. I'm talking the Hollywood crowd and the social engineering crowd. I'm not talking about 
your average person that may identify with this LGBTQ community or whatever it is. Most of them, they don't like the way they're represented out there in media because they are represented as, well, let's say, let's face it, extremists because that's what they put all over the entertainment and the television all the time in the news media and everywhere else. The extremes of both sides. It's the same thing. Not every Republican out there who is thinking in terms of family values is a white supremacist, how they're presented, or a Trump supporter, or a misogynist, or all of these different things, how they're presented. There are extremists on both sides, and these are the ones that are represented based upon the needs of these few people at the top of the power structure, how they want to steer the agendas. So this is what's been done and inculcated into the American public mind. And it's all been inculcated by this small group, according to Coleman here and according to others, not just Coleman. I would say he's probably spot on with some of his assessment. I can't. 100% 100% verify that some of the names are correct. Probably are. You see, he had access to this because he was in the big club. He was in the intelligence community. He worked for these people. He worked for them. So, of course, they would badmouth him, and they have. And they've done their best to censor the things he's said. But we still need to bring this to the attention of the people. But let's go ahead. I really ventured off the the main path there for a while. Let's get back into the reading, and we're going to wrap it up here in a few minutes. So he says here, All three major television networks came as spinoffs from RCA, especially the national broadcasting company known as NBC, which was first closely followed by the American Broadcasting Company, ABC, in 1951. The third big television network was Columbia Broadcasting System, CBS, which, like its sister companies, was and still is dominated by British intelligence. William Paley was trained in mass brainwashing techniques at the Tavistock Institute prior to being passed off as qualified to head CBS. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. You're kidding. Television executives are Tavistock trained? How to indoctrinate people and brainwash people? You're kidding. They may not directly call it that, but that's essentially what's done. You know, you could better describe, I think, if you want to get down to the technical aspect of this, if you describe something like propaganda or brainwashing or indoctrination as marketing, then you get a pass. And you get a pat on the back if you're good at it. That's what's been done here. Marketing. They call it marketing, and then they get away with it. This guy's a marketing genius. No, he's a social engineer. Marketing. He's really good at it, and we don't want to give it a negative connotation and call it propaganda. We'll call it marketing. So you put these guys in charge of these major networks, these major broadcast media sources. And what do you think you get? If you have centralized control and you have the select few individuals that work for this larger corporation that wants something put out there, 
you could position yourself in a way where you can make that happen. If you run one of these major companies, if you're the head of, say, something like a CBS, you have a buddy on the committee, takes care of you, says, hey, I want you to put out some type of a news program saying such and such. You do it. You do what they want, and they take care of you, you take care of them. You know how this is. This goes on in business all the time. This is part of the crony capitalist network. Let's continue here. It says, Thus, if we the people of the United States but knew it, all our major television networks are subject to British oversight, and information they provide first goes to London for clearance. It is interesting to note that the Tavistock Intelligence paper written by Stanford Research Institute, SRI International, commonly named the Aquarian Conspiracy, was funded by donations from all three major television networks. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now you know something about the Aquarian Conspiracy that should tell you what you need to know. Apparently, those people in positions of power wanted this to come front and center, to be known, to be out there. All three major networks are represented on the Committee of 300 and are affiliated with the giant of the mass communication business, the Xerox Corporation of Rochester, New York, whose Robert M. Beck holds a seat on the committee. Beck is also a director of the Prudential Life Insurance Company, which is a subsidiary of the London Prudential Assurance Company Limited. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, you see same people on the boards of many of these major corporations. Amazing, isn't it, how they all overlap in this way? And I don't know if Xerox still has a major presence in the world today, or I suspect maybe they've changed names or have consolidated with some other company now. But this guy was a major player back at that time. Let's read on. Others on the board of Xerox are Howard Clark of the American Express Company, one of the main conduits for moving drug money through traveler's checks, former Secretary of the Treasury William Simon, and Saul Linowitz, who negotiated the Panama Canal treaties for the committee. Linowitz is important to the committee by virtue of his long-standing expertise in laundering drug money through Marine Midland and the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the old Silk Road still exists <laughs> as far as the black market goes. And understand, understand the drug problem that we have in the world, the illegal drugs, they're all run by these very same people. Do you really think your average gangbanger is smart enough to run a drug cartel? Think about it. Think about it. Ever wonder why there's Freemasonic graffiti in various gang-related areas? Why much of their graffiti looks like Freemasonic symbols? It's because it's organized by a greater power, by a greater organization. They're not just your average gangbanger out there, just out there smuggling drugs into and out of countries and money, exchanging money. Yes, sometimes they get 
these people from the streets, but they just follow their orders. They do what their dealer tells them, their supplier. They don't ask a lot of questions because, well, they don't really need to know. And if they do know, it puts them in a greater danger. And it puts their supplier in a greater danger. So we have this black market. And we have these people involved in laundering money through these legit banks in various ways. And see, this is why... This is one of the reasons why I think the whole central bank digital currency thing is going to fail. Is because, here's the problem. The powers that be in this world, they need an operational black market. They need a way to covertly move money and goods around in order to maintain their power base and keep themselves in business. With a central bank digital currency and centralized control over the finance of the world, this can no longer be done. So there will always be a backdoor solution to this, because you see, these people who've inculcated themselves in the positions of power in this world, they need to have those black market operations, they need to have some way to move large amounts of money and or goods around covertly. The intelligence agencies need the secrecy in order to function. And when you introduce a central bank digital currency, complete with attachment to all your biometric data and all of your social credit score data and all of those things in a centralized utility what this does and this is one of the attractive things they'll try to push to get people to buy into this what this does is it makes it so that no transaction can ever go unrecorded unacknowledged no transaction do you really think the Pentagon wants a system like that? <laughs> Do you really think they want to be held accountable for all of the trillions upon trillions of dollars that have gone missing into black budget programs? You see, that's the other thing. These special access programs, the whole black budget, it won't be able to be done anymore with a central bank digital currency. So they need something else. So there's going to be some other means of operation here in this world. So let's not get too hung up on the worries of central bank digital currency because it will be a colossal failure simply for these reasons because these scumbags who want to maintain their power in this world, if they set up such a system, they will be shooting themselves in the foot. It can't stand. And it won't stand. And if you think there's hackers out there that won't figure out how they're maneuvering and doing this, how they're doing their secret dealings in the background, you're sorely mistaken. No matter how slick these people think they are, there's always somebody out there that can figure ways around their systems, loopholes, hacks. Their encryption, all of these things 
So no matter how slick they think they are, it won't stand. And this is simply why, because they do too many things, too many dirty dealings, let's put it that way, too many things on the sly. They're the major ones that do this, and they're worried about my $600 <laughs> that I make from maybe, what, selling, uh, uh, I don't know, selling something on eBay or something. They're worried about that. But yet, trillions of dollars go missing from the State Department, from the Pentagon, through these banks, get laundered through these banks, and nobody bats an eyelash. I don't think so. It's time to start holding people accountable for these things, these big corporations, these big government entities and things. It's time that we, the people, just stop blindly accepting these people as authority figures. It's time we start ignoring them and doing things how we want. And one way we could do this and really stab off a lot of this is to refuse to let go of the notion of a physical currency. Need to get back to real money, folks. Something substantial. Maybe get back into gold and silver. But even just holding on to the fiat paper currency is still preferable to going to a central bank digital currency system, a strictly digital system. It's untenable. It will lead to the greatest loss of human freedom ever. And it seems to be what these people are pushing for, but I think intrinsically they know that they won't be able to get away with their dirty dealings if they were to set this up, especially if some type of an artificial intelligence that controls it goes rogue and starts tracking and monitoring and penalizing them for the things they're doing and realize that this is going on. It won't stand. Look at the things that are being claimed about central bank digital currency. I'm not for it by a long shot. Don't get me wrong. I do not want that. I think it's a horrible idea. But based upon what these people in power want for themselves, it's a bad idea for them too. So are they blooming idiots? Are they really that stupid? Do they want to set this thing up? Do they think they're going to escape it somehow? That they're just beyond the reach of it? I don't think so. If you want to do business, if you want to participate in society with this system, you're going to be completely engrafted in it as well. Unless, of course, you've crafted some type of a way to use loopholes or backdoor systems or a black market of sorts. But see, in order for that, to exist, you need something of real value. Something physical with real value for a black market to be viable. So you need either some type of fiat cash money or real valuable materials like gold and silver, real money, real land holdings, something that exists physically, in the real world, not just in a digital ledger somewhere. You can't have a black market with a digital ledger. That won't work. That won't work. That would be like me saying, 
hey, I have $40,000 in said account somewhere, and this account doesn't really exist, <laughs> and trying to buy something with it, it, it just uh, won't work. It doesn't work, especially if you're trying to trade on a black market of some sort. Not going to work. It's not going to fly. If you don't have something of value for these people, it's not going to be viable. So that's why I think something like that's not going to stand, or it's going to be very limited in its use. And we see how they've attempted, they've now attempted to usurp the whole basis of things like Bitcoin and all these cryptocurrencies. Because it is a type of decentralized utility, but even though it's decentralized, you still have to have access to the internet to use that decentralized type of currency. And if they control access to the internet, well, they got you. They want to make programmable money and this kind of thing, but it's a bad idea, even for them. And I think at some point they're going to realize this, or it's going to bite them in the butt, and they're going to regret it. One way or the other, it's not going to stand either way. But anyway, we see how these central figures in this committee of 300 are those that really kind of push and promote different policies throughout the world here through in various manners. Let's go ahead. I'm going to finish up here. I'm going to read just a little bit more, and we're going to call it a night here. Another Xerox board member is Robert Sprawl. I've heard of Robert Sprawl. Perhaps you have too who is of real interest because, as president of the University of Rochester, he allowed the Tavistock Institute, working through the CIA, to use the university's facilities for the 20-year MK Ultra LSD experiments. Some 85 other universities in the U.S. also allowed their facilities to be misused in this manner. A giant-sized, or as giant-sized as Xerox is, it is dwarfed by the Rank Organization, a London-based conglomerate fully controlled by members of Queen Elizabeth's immediate family. Notable members of the Board of Rank Organization, who are also members of the Committee of 300, are following. Lord Helsby, chairman of the drug money clearinghouse Midland Bank. Helsby's other positions included directorship in the giant Imperial Group and the Industrial and Commercial Finance Corporation. Sir Arnold France, a director of Tube Investments, who runs the London Underground Train Service. France is also a director of the Bank of England, which has so much control over the Federal Reserve Banks. Sir Dennis Mountain, chairman of the Mighty Eagle Star Group and a director of English Property Corporation, one of the renter financer companies of the British royal family. One such member is the Honorable Angus Ogilvie, Prince of Companies, who is married to Her Royal Highness Princess Alexandria, sister of the Duke of Kent, leader of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry, and who takes the place of the Queen when she is outside of Britain. Ogilvy is a director of the Bank of England and chairman of the giant Lonroe conglomerate. It was Lonroe that ended the rule of Ian Smith in Rhodesia so that he could be replaced by Robert Mugabe. At stake was Rhodesia's chrome mines, which produced the finest high-grade chrome ore in the world. Cyril Hamilton, chairman of the Standard and Chartered Bank, the old Lord Milner Cecil Rhodes Bank, and a member uh, of 
a board member of the Bank of England. Hamilton is also on the board of the Xerox Corporation, the Malta International Banking Corporation, a Knights of Malta Bank, a director of the Standard Bank of Africa, the largest bank in that country, and a director of the Banque Belge d'Afrique. Lord O'Brien of Lotherby, past president of the British Bankers Association, director of Morgan Grenfell, a powerful bank, director of Prudential Assurance, director of J.P. Morgan, director of the Bank of England, a board member of the Bank of International Settlements, a director of the giant Unilever conglomerate. Sir Ray Geddes, chairman of the giant Dunlop and Pirelli Tire Companies, director of the Midland and International Banks, director of the Bank of England. Note how many of these powerful men are directors of the Bank of England, which makes control of American fiscal policies simple. All right, folks, I think I'm going to end it there. We get the idea. Now, there are several other organizations and some names that he names here. But we get the point here. Basically, a lot of this ties back to London, to England, to the Bank of England, to the British Royals, and of course the rest of the black nobility of Europe, the Venetian black nobility families. They're all interlocked. They all have membership on this committee of 300. They've all teamed together. For their mutual benefit, these various people, and they run these giant conglomerates, these giant corporations and front companies, intertwined with intelligence, with media, with government, and this is how they get things done, centralized control primarily through the auspices of the banking and insurance companies. This is how things get done. If you direct where the money goes, you could direct the future of any business endeavor or any personal endeavor, really, when it gets down to it. And this is what they've done. They've so leveraged control in this way that I think it goes without saying. I think it goes without saying They've made it difficult for your average citizen, your average person, your average person just going through your day-to-day grind, trying to get along, to stand up to any of this. You just blindly go along to get along. That's the thing, and we support their systems, whether we want to or not. They take our tax dollars and cycle them back into these interests. Everything we buy or we purchase or we spend our money on goes to these interests. So we're feeding the beast, so to say, in a lot of ways if we participate in society in any way, shape, or form. It's difficult. It's something that's almost unavoidable. But I think something needs to change, and we need to start maybe naming the names and holding some people accountable. Remember, we outnumber them millions to one millions to one of course they're trying to remedy that problem that they have by depopulating the world and i think we're beginning to see some of that come to fruition here i suspect but at any rate it's not too late it's never too late 
and we can refuse their offers. We can reject their systems. We can turn this whole thing around. And all we have to do is say no to some of the things that they want. No, we don't want central bank digital currency. No, thank you. We'll continue to use physical cash. Thank you very much. Something like that. Simple solutions that we have. Reject these things. We have that option. We have the free will. There's always more options. That's what they don't want you to believe. It's not going to be one way or the other. There are always more choices that can be made. There's always alternatives. And I think moving forward, we need to explore these alternatives. We don't have to have central bank digital currency. And likewise, we don't have to not have a system a system of exchange like a cryptocurrency, which is decentralized. We don't need to not have that. We can have both. Perhaps cooperatively, we can have actual physical money again. We can have value. And we could have these electronic systems that make it much easier to do business. We can have both without all the control measures and all the limitations that they would like to impose. That's what they don't want you to understand. It doesn't have to be the way that they've designed it or, or want it to be for us to benefit them. It can benefit us. We can use these technologies that we have to benefit us, benefit the masses, and screw these people who think that they are the all-powerful rulers of this world. They have limited power. They only have as much power as we allow them to have. They only have as much influence as we allow them to have. So when we reject their systems and their things they want to put in place and we laugh at them, they are powerless to do anything about it. And they have to buckle to a collective will of the masses in that way. It's just a numbers game. So if enough people reject these things they want to give us, we can still turn this around and have a better future. And I'm hopeful of that. But at any rate, folks, I wanted to name some of the names tonight so you know what we're up against here. And we can see it's a giant shell game disguised by corporation and intelligence community operatives and governmental organizations, as well as philanthropy groups and all of these various factors that come into play in all the different sectors of society. But it's a couple key people in positions of power that are the ones that pull the strings. And if we could reject those things they try to push on us, en masse, we can turn it all around. So that's the hope I have. I want to thank you all for tuning in tonight. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.